Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say that Kate Moore is in the studio with us here in New York, BlackRock Investment Institute Chief Equity Strategist. She Kate, stocks over bonds. I'm sure she does. And we're going to get into that in a moment. I just want to begin, Kate, with saying good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the crazy house here in New York and Brussels to Bloomberg <laughs> for, Surveillance Radio. For what it's worth, Tom. I don't always say stocks over bonds. There are environments where I can right, imagine fair. fixed income returns being okay. But you know, for most of the investors that we speak to over the time horizons they invest in, it pays to kind of weather the volatility in stocks and to really, you know, if you're going to shift and sort of tilt your portfolio more towards quality and, and more uncertain times, it just still play, pays to stay invested. So. Um, yeah, we are continuing to recommend stocks over bonds, although, as we noted in the surveillance, lower conviction. Let's just develop your framework for thinking about the global economy and the global market at the moment. This isn't the story of the last month. It's the story of 2018 for the global economy. Deceleration in Europe, deceleration in China as well. Do you see that catching up with the United States? I don't see it in the data yet. Do you see it in the data next year? Well, deceleration from some of the grade of growth we had in 2018, but nothing that's going to really raise a flag. Look, you know, as much as people like to wring their hands and uh, have great debate over, you know, recession probabilities over the next 12 months, it seems extremely unlikely in our view and also in our, you know, analytical uh, assessment that the U.S. could enter in any types of recession uh, in the near term. That said, we are talking about a slower growth rate next year, and that has implications. So, you know, our view is that you have to be much more thoughtful about how you construct your portfolio over the year ahead, that you need to be right. a little bit more tactical, and that you're going to have to be taking advantage of opportunities when prices and things it, get dislocated. Okay, but if you have a slower growth rate, which I would suggest 99.9% of our audience agrees with you on, yep. Kate Moore, does that make growthiness of a greater premium and value? Look, it, our bias is that, yes, there's still going to be a bid for assets that can grow even in a slower growth environment. Mm -hmm. You know, the funny thing is, is that we've had this like almost 10 year period where growth has continued to have a bid uh, and value has not really been able to catch a lot of attention. The truth of the matter is, is that what falls into value today, some of it is structurally impaired. Not everything that's cheap is cheap unfairly. Some of the stuff that's cheap deserves it. So let me ask you this question. Are banks part of that story? Do they deserve to be where they are? Because this quiet, vicious sell-off happening, and I don't think enough people are talking about it. City is on a seven-day losing streak yeah. coming into today's session. It's down about 14, 15% over those seven days. That is brutal. Is it, that justified? It, John, it's totally brutal in part because I had been significantly overweight the banks. In the You're not alone. This year. <laughs> yeah, no, I had good company in getting this dead wrong. And you know, it seemed like there was this perfect environment from growth and policy and less regulatory pressure and better cash return. And, you know, uh, none of that seemed to really matter. And today, you know, despite the fact that we are in what we think is a, at the very worst case scenario, a stable growth, but likely a continued to ex expanding economy, uh, the regulatory pressure is still easing. These banks are still in very good shape. Their balance sheets look awesome. Uh, no one cares, and they're getting sold off viciously uh, as the expectation that the Fed is going to pause uh, really takes hold across the investor base. So the story to be bullish the banks 
I keep getting told the same story to be bullish the banks. And my question really is, when are investors are going to start responding differently to the same story they experienced in 2018? They don't necessarily have to in 2019. I think if we're going to go back to the question you just asked me a moment ago. Does growth continue to get a bid in, a, in this environment? And I think that's right. Like, even though the banks are in good shape, they're not going to be um, shooting the lights out when it comes to growth. And so I think there's going to be a preference for sectors and for industries and companies that can really right. put up stronger numbers, not just solid numbers, but stronger numbers at this point in the cycle. And I'm not sure banks are there. Kate Moore, what is a mergers and acquisitions type to do? What's a CFO to do? I mean, if you're going to have slower growth, you've got to buy revenues. So this word synergy comes up for next year. I mean, it just keeps on going, right? Well, I think if you have slower growth, you got to do a couple of things. Maintain control of your costs. Be really thoughtful about your investment program. Make sure you're allocating capital internally to those uh, parts of your business that have the ability to grow through all parts of the cycle. And you're right. In some cases, you're going to have to think about acquisitions. And valuations have come down across the board. I would suggest that valuations in private markets have not come down uh, as much. Yeah. So if you're thinking about acquiring assets, um, you'd have to think about, you know, public looking at it a bit more of a discount than the private stuff at this point. Okay, more. Great to catch up with you. BlackRock yes. Institute, Investment Institute, Chief Equity Strategist. You have a wonderful Christmas if we don't see you before. Thank you. Merry, merry. Yeah. I want to bring in David Sowerby and Cora. Managing Director and Portfolio Manager. David, it feels like a growth scare a la 2016. How different is it? It's very similar to late 2015, early 2016. Stock prices are trading about the same valuation as they were in February of 16 at the bottom, whether it's on a price to earnings or as Tom knows quite well how I want to value it on a free cash flow yield basis. Sentiment is getting very washed out. The yeah. dollar was strong in, in <clears throat> 2015 and then it retreated. It is similar and I right. think because it's similar, it becomes yeah. an interesting buying opportunity. John, that's equity talk that you're hearing there. It's different than what you cover on the real. We're going to continue you know, the equity talk, Tom. We can talk about it. I like too. We can do that with David Sowerby. I also want to point out the press gathered here uh, in uh, Brussels awaiting Prime Minister May, the British flags, and one EU flag as well, uh, positioned behind the lectern in a blue backdrop. And we'll look for that from Prime Minister May here uh, in a moment. David Sowerby, we always talk about the focus, focus, focus of all of the media, and that's the big stocks. You love to go mid. You love to go small. I want to talk about mid caps. Have mid caps enjoyed a correction, or have they shown their usual historic resiliency? They have more bruises this year than large cap. The Russell 2000 to go even smaller, down 6% year to date. Mid caps, a similar number. It's been a it's been a tough environment. Yet at the same time, when GDP growth is better than three percent on an inflation adjusted basis, that's a good backdrop for earnings and a good backdrop for the small caps to reemerge. Do you agree that cash is an asset? No, not in the long term. In the long term, Tom, cash is trash. It is a drag in portfolios. But 2018 will be that year when cash beats everything. Large cap, small cap, U.S., non-U.S., bonds. C cash is a nice thing to have this year, but in the long term, cash is trash. It's interesting that just as people all start to fall in love with cash, and my colleague Luke Carr at Bloomberg brought this up as well, cash was hated at the start of the year in January. 
And then that was the thing that outperformed on 2018. Now everyone's in love with cash and now duration starts to outperform. So here's the, here's the key. In January, investor sentiment, individual investor sentiment was more than 50% bullish when nobody liked cash. As of yesterday, investor sentiment was 48% bearish above the long-term average when people want more cash. From a contrarian perspective, it's a good time to be a selective, selective net buyer. So selective where? Let's be more specific. Do you like the banks here? The banks have been totally hammered over the last couple of weeks. It's been pretty ugly. Uh, mediocre. How, how's that for a portfolio manager view? Uh, Citizens Financial, I think that that's a regional bank that has good loan growth, uh, lower charge-offs. That, that's interesting. But for the most part, the, the bank story this year, which was the call everybody wanted to make, yeah. hasn't worked. David, with, with your experience and, and particularly with your institutional service to pension funds and giving them advice, how do you handle a General Electric? Let's say you own it, you've enjoyed the losses. How do you do that? I'm not talking about some trader, somebody like Doug Cass that's in and out and all that. I'm talking about mom and pop, they own GE, oops. How do you handle that? It, it's. I think it's. It goes back to 2000 when when a high-profile CEO leaves a company on a high note. That's usually a better time to sell than buy. Hindsight's 2020, but that's been the story with General Electric. You and I have talked about other conglomerates which have been better return on capital companies. Yeah. Like Honeywell. That that's been a so much better play than than General Electric, and I think that's still the story well. today. Okay, so UTX, United Technologies, wants to break up into three David Sowerby companies. For you, that's a good thing. Do you buy all three? What do you do? Well, one thing you want to watch is where does the CFO go in the breakup? And oh, and where the CFO goes is usually because they're pretty – got some good inside baseball. That That's a good place to be. And in the case of Honeywell, they spun off their, uh, their home uh, security business, Residio, uh, symbol R-E-Z-I. I think that's an interesting play as a spinoff on, on Honeywell. What do they do? What does Residio they, do? They are, you can control your heat, your your lighting in, from a remote in your house. They're very good on home security. For a person like oh, okay. me who writes checks and doesn't do it himself, Residio uses professional service people to put that all together, and they're a recent spinoff out of Honeywell. Sounds David, like John, you need that. When was the last time you cared about Brexit? <laughs> I remember when Brexit, the vote the day after, the market went down initially, and then it, and then it got right back on its bicycle, and it continued to do well. And, and I think this is maybe too simple. No wonder the UK wants to depart. They don't want to be dictated by uncompetitive countries, whether it's Belgium, France, Italy, you name it. And the UK is is the eighth most competitive country on this planet and the rest yeah. of their peers there are simply not john, maybe germany or switzerland that that's what they have an issue with john the single most important conversation i've had on this junket was with a guy that runs the national health system uh my recollection is matthew hancock uh, is his name and he was heated john that he's a Remainer, he's an elitist London, you know, the usual thing, in his case, directly supporting the Prime Minister. And he says the vast majority of his district, his constituency, is leave. That's the problem the MPs have. He, he was he, That's the single most important conversation I've had 
other than trying to figure out Waterloo Street in Brussels. A, a very thin majority of the United Kingdom who did vote voted to leave. There is an overwhelming majority within Parliament to stay within the European Union. The officials don't seem to represent what their constituents want, and I think that's the political problem these parties yeah. have. On top of that, the parties themselves aren't just divided by party, they're divided by the one issue. So the Labour Party is divided, the Conservative Party is divided, and the Labour Party is offering very little alternative to what the Prime well, Minister is bringing home from Brussels again today, which is the yeah, same thing she had last week. But not to run a survey here, and there'll be polling and all that coming up. With all this uproar, John Farrell, would you suggest there could be even a greater leave constituency? I've got no idea, to be honest with you, Tom. Okay, and I hate to call it. And every time I've offered a view on Brexit, I've been wrong five minutes later. I have I no idea that. what the I Prime Minister's going to say. the day after Brexit, when you led our coverage, the day after Brexit. Was I wrong five minutes you later? Were wrong, yeah, every five minutes, every four minutes. Who's counting? I have to say that <clears> someone that did stand up and did lead was Governor Carney. Um, it helped his reputation for about 24 hours because he has had a tough time ever since, Tom. Well, I, and this is so important, and we can go to David Sowerby on this uh, right now. David, I thought Mr. Draghi yesterday showed the limited degrees of freedom that central bankers have given global slowdown and given the realities of price change. Do you look for next year, Chairman Powell, to have a limited choice set versus what was thought of six months ago? I had no problem with Chairman Powell's comments in October when he said, my mission as Fed chair is, as it always should be, is low inflation and price stability. And maybe maybe he retreats from that somewhat. But as long as the Fed is committed to that, I, I don't have a problem with two or three rate hikes, yeah. uh, th even a little bit more, because real Fed funds are still effectively zero. And ultimately, that's great for financial markets, but it hasn't showed up yet, but it can be inflationary. Are there mid-caps, David Sowerby, in Europe? There are. Uh, I'm getting out of my wheelhouse a little bit in in uh, in that space. So turning back to the U.S., I talked about Residio uh, as an example. Wyndham Hotels, which has spun off its its uh, travel business, and they're, and they're right. They're right in the sweet spot of Ramada, Days Inn, Howard Johnson's. To go back in time, Th that is, I think, a, a good play in the mid cap space. It's about a five billion dollar market cap. And I think that's that's really interesting for again believing in the long term. You're going to make money buying spinoffs. Wyndham has nine analysts who follow it. I, I like that. You know, someone wrote into me yesterday, Tom, and I think this is a subject that we can perhaps talk about now between the three of us. And they said Please. the economy has been so strong through 2018. If things have been as good as this administration and the Federal Reserve say, why does this market fall out of bed every time real rates breach one percent? It why, why is it that shouldn't. happening? It, it, it shouldn't. The, the, I think the key is put interest rates and inflation together. And if interest rates are going up because the economy is stronger, loan demand is higher, ISM index closer to 60 than 50, that, that, that's not a bad thing. But when interest rates are going up because we're way behind a curve on inflation and inflation is pushing not at 2% not at today but closer to 4 then we've got serious problems. But I think it raises a much bigger issue. Since the financial crisis, has our tolerance as a global economy and a global marketplace, our tolerance for higher interest rates, has it diminished to that degree that we can't get away from 1% real? I think ultimately that as long as your return on capital is greater than your cost of capital. 
and return on capital is more like 5%, cost of capital is more like 3%, that's a good spread for the backdrop for equity investors. And good luck forecasting interest rates. You're wrong more than you're right. But, but I think they're still going to go higher. Well, the expectations for 2019 is incredibly dovish. Uh, the Economist that I'm reading ahead of next week's decision is a dovish interest rate hike. And my response to that is dovish to what? Dovish relative to what? Yeah. Because expectations right now are already so dovish. I would say it's a high bar going into next week for the Federal Reserve. To a deliver, high bar in what way? To deliver already very, very dovish expectations for what the Fed's going to deliver in 19. Chairman no. Powell, please keep your independence and don't pay attention to the tweets and know what your mission is, and we'll do just fine. And, and, sure. for, and for interest rate forecasts, as a former bank economist, economists are notoriously wrong on forecasting interest rates. That's why I manage money and I'm not an economist anymore. David, what's a pulse you see away from the elites of New York City and the West Coast and Washington and uh, the rest of it? What's a pulse you see out in your Midwest? what you affectionately refer to as the flyover zone in the Midwest, yeah. it's yes. just fine. Michigan's unemployment rate is less than 4%, down from 14% in 2009, 2010. Has this buoyant economy filtered down to the broad part of America, or has it been a make America great again elite uh, growth? Wage growth, income growth for the last year has started, has been better for middle income earners now growing better than 3%. So it has it has filtered down. That's why I think a, a Wyndham name works because of the, the the properties they own. Ramadas, right, days in. We're not talking about the Ritz-Carlton. We're talking about more medium price points to stay at. David Salby, great to catch up Wonderful. with you. Wonderful, thank you. Always, always great to catch up with you. Thank, thank you very thank much you for so dropping much. by. Dean Kerner joining us, Macro Risk Advisors. The volatility of the last couple of weeks, Dean, what do you make of it? Yeah, I think it's um, the markets are grappling with uh, a bunch of different cross-currents at once. Um, you've obviously got tariffs as the overriding story with the markets, but you know below the surface there's a bunch of other things going on as well. There is uh, concerns that the sort of the firm handshake that the, the markets and the Fed had agreed upon for, for many years in the Bernanke and, and Yellen era is uh, is coming to a close in the sense that uh, Jerome Powell is uh, effectively having to take back some of the assurances that uh, his predecessors were able to give markets uh, because he just doesn't know. Uh, and so uh, the markets are trying to understand uh, where the Fed is, is heading from here. Um, so that, that's one, are the markets and Fed talking past each other. And then I'd say the second one is, uh, look, markets are discounting mechanisms, and there are concerns that global growth has peaked and that some of the, quote, overbuilding uh, that occurs during very benign cycles, especially in the credit markets, is starting to kind of come home to, to roost. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, yeah. sort of pricing of distress that's in markets. And, and you know, we're going to in some ways have to wait and see whether the economic fundamentals are strong enough or, or the market's right that things are actually starting to slow. Well, let's get into that, Dean. The market's trying to get ahead of something. Some people are trying to figure out whether it's overshooting. Is it? It's it's so difficult to say. I, I would I would comment that uh, markets and the economy are very distinct things, and then for quite a long time, actually, what the the benefit to the market 
of a weak economy was that the Fed stayed in town for longer and longer, right? The justification for uh, ongoing uh, Fed policy that was very supportive to the market was, in fact, a weak economy. And now it's almost that the reverse is occurring, that the, uh, at least for the U.S. economy, the, the strength of the economy, uh, the, the Fed's looking forward and trying to ascertain whether inflation is headed higher uh, via, um, you know, diminished slack in the economy, um, that's Fed policy yeah. that's, um, uh, you know, indicates that things are actually going well, but it may not be supportive to the markets as we uh, try to understand right. how much of you know how much of asset prices were a function of low rates. Dean Kernett, how should our audience use the VIX? The VIX is 1920 long-term average. Boy, these are odd times, different times. Is a 21 VIX now the same as a 21 VIX in 2006 or 1996? One of the things that uh, is important to understand is that the VIX is, uh, used to be just an index that we observed. Uh, the VIX is the price uh, of insurance for one-month options on the S&P 500. It's a measure of implied volatility, and it's something that we just looked at. It was a calculated figure. Uh, now it is a vastly traded instrument. Uh, there are VIX futures. There are VIX options, uh, all of which trade with substantial uh, liquidity and, and find their way uh, into the portfolios, both from an offensive and defensive standpoint. Um, if you look actually at the, the realized volatility of the VIX itself, so this is in some ways a measure of the vol of the vol, uh, it starts to rise right around 2004. And <clears throat> with some ups and downs along the way, it's, it's generally risen for the last 14 years. And it, uh, it almost corresponds exactly with the introduction of VIX futures and options. So the financialization of the product is what makes now different. It's not an, an observation of, of right. an index. It's a traded asset that people so need to get into and out of. What is Dean Kernett's average VIX? I'm assuming it's not 20 anymore. Well, listen, the, the, the VIX is really just, uh, it, it's very correlated to the, the movement back and forth uh, in, in markets. Uh, and by that, I mean, um, if, if you look at realized volatility, uh, so just the, the HVG function on, on the terminal, you're going to see that um, uh, since October, the realized volatility of the S&P has been slightly north of 20. Um, so it's actually no surprise that the VIX is sitting here at 20. In fact, many would say that options, even with the VIX up here, are actually a pretty good deal. They're justified by the much more substantial, not, not just close-to-close movements, which is what uh, most, of, uh, most folks look at. Uh, if you look at the intraday movements, they're actually illustrating a almost far greater level of volatility than just close-to-close. It's these, mm -hmm. these back-and-forth intraday that are actually very right. meaningful with respect to option pricing. John, did you get all that? I, I got some of it, and I wanted to follow up if that's really? okay. Yeah, Dean, please. I think if you ask many people right now whether downside protection was expensive, they might answer yes. Is it? Yeah, so again, it's, uh, when we look at options, we, uh, we're, we're looking at two things. We're, we're looking at the, the cost, uh, just the, so we're going to score the price of the option in the context of its history. So um, to, to answer your question the first way, Jonathan, relative to last year at this time, these options are vastly more expensive. Remember, last December, uh, the VIX is, was closing very consistently below 10. The realized volatility uh, in the S&P was, was, was sort of half that, about 5%. Uh, now you have the realized volatility uh, about 20 
so up 15 points from a year ago. And the options uh, are up about 10 points from a year ago. Um, so, so in some ways, and this is the paradox, in some ways, uh, options at 20 VIX right now are in, in some ways less expensive relative to the realized volatility than they were last year. Uh, last year, the VIX was 10, but the realized was only 5. Um, and so it, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky thing to answer. Um, what, what do we need to sustain a VIX of 20? You need movements in the S&P uh, of about 1.2, 1.3% a day. So you need to yeah. run you know, through, through a bunch of uh, S&P handles, but frankly, that's what's been happening with a great degree of So, of Dean, just to jump in and make it clearer, to make the judgment that implied vol is cheap versus realized vol, you have to believe that it lasts. That's exactly right. You, you, it, when you look at options and you compare implied to realized, you're just looking backwards at the data that's already occurred. That's the realized. And then, as you said, you're asking yourself, is this sustainable? Um, so a couple of things there. One, we are about to head into this late uh, seasonal period where we've got Thanksgiving and I'm uh, sorry, uh, Christmas and New Year's. That tends to be a pretty bad time for mm-hmm. volatility folks, if they can try to shut it down and, and get away from the desk. Well, um, not, not much to expect there, but, but of course, you've got these, these headlines that keep hitting the markets uh, as right. well, and those have been you know, an engine for volatility. This has been wonderful. We're going to try to get this out on our podcast today uh, uh, because it bears uh, re-listening for those trying to figure out uh, the dynamics and the Greek letters of the options system. Mr. Kernan uh, is with Macro Risk Advisors, Dean Kernan. Right now, Paul Sweeney in New York. I'm Tom Keene in Brussels. And joining us is someone who can give us great perspective on, I'm going to call it sort of the zeitgeist bet of the moment. Gabriel Santos is with J.P. Morgan. And, Gabriel, it's become so fashionable in the last 10 weeks to say, get back into EM. I get it. EM, bad market, down. And I guess it becomes a value. But I'm not sure I see the economic data that tells me that. Wither EM at your JP Morgan. Yeah, Tom. So it's great to be here with you. Um, definitely a much uh, more difficult year for emerging markets than we expected. Uh, and I think really you just see that reflected in sentiment very, very clearly. We've seen multiples contracting a lot for emerging market equities. We've seen currencies weakening. So sentiment is just incredibly negative right now. Uh, when we look at the actual data, um, we are not in crisis mode in emerging markets, unlike back in 2015, 2016. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure it's necessarily uh, a 12 with 12 month window we're talking about here, right? For emerging markets, it tends to be uh, a feast or famine. Uh, I like to think it more uh, over a multi-year process. Uh, And there, I think if you still don't have a lot of exposure to emerging markets, as a lot of US-based investors tend not to, then now is a good time to slowly add back in, but with a multi-year window in mind here. So, Gabriella, back here in, in, in the U.S., um, the R word, as in recession, is being bandied about, it's seemingly increasingly every week. Is a recession in your forecast for 2019? If not, what 
what are some of the risks that could push us into recession? So it's also become, I think, very fashionable to talk about recession uh, in the U.S. these days and to try to ascribe a specific year and month to it with uh, late 2019, 2020 uh, becoming uh, consensus, I think. Our view, though, is when you look at the actual data, it does not support that kind of call, especially when you look at the consumer, which, of course, is 70% of the U.S. economy. We just got some very strong retail sales this morning. Uh, consumption has been very strong here in 2019. For next year, we can't sustain that kind of pace of consumption. It's been 3 3.5%, 4% in the second quarter. Uh, we have to slow down, but you can still see consumption growing at 2% next year with with difficulty in seeing what can really knock that off course absent, let's say, a, a spike in inflation or a big shock that all of a sudden leads businesses to, you know, go into layoffs, for example. Uh, so for us, we acknowledge we're later on in the cycle. The probability goes up of a recession over the next few years. But I think it's very hard to say that it has to be in 2019 or 2020, given such a strong consumer. Right. So given that fairly constructive outlook for 2019, 2020, where are you advising your clients in terms of asset allocations, uh, equities versus fixed income? Yeah, and so the, the clients that we speak to in asset management tend to have a longer term horizon in view, right? They're planning for retirement, for uh, paying for college, for things like that. Um, so in that environment, we would still tend to prefer to be slightly overweight the equity piece to the fixed income piece. But we have been talking to our clients about slowly dimming the dials a little bit. And what we mean What does that, that mean? Oh, come yeah. on. That's CFA talk. <laughs> Dimming and the dials. And what we mean by that, Tom, um, is <laughs> slowly starting to bring risk down. So let's say, you know, when I was sitting here with, uh, with you, let's say a year, year and a half ago, we were saying we're very bullish, go very, very overweight the equity piece. Let's call it 70% equities, 30 yeah, fixed income. Yeah, yeah. We're not in that kind of conversation anymore. It's probably closer to your, to your neutral. Uh, yep. Yeah closer to 61-40%. And I think it's it becomes more important also to take a look beneath the hood, right? Uh, really taking a look at actual quality companies, right. taking a look at the kind of leverage companies have. We're starting to see that really play out this year. Is, is, is single digit in our minds yet? We keep talking about this in the media and experts like you talk about single uh, digit. I don't buy it for a minute. People are addicted to 12% a year. <laughs> and that is a, a conversation we tend to have uh, a lot. Um, you know, you look at returns over the last 10 10 years, you have had, you know, double digit returns in equity markets. So that feels normal. <laughs> well, that's because Paul Sweeney bought Netflix at two. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like something one should be counting on for the next decade. Uh, however, Tom, we really do think it is more of a mid single digit world, whether it's equities or a 60, 40 portfolio. What we pencil in for the next decade is closer to five and a half annualized. So that's much lower, I think, than what people do in, no. in their mental math. <laughs> so, you know, we got to be more active about it. You got to have emerging markets. Um, <clears throat> you should, you know, also can think about adding some alternatives to try to boost right. that. And also just save more, I think, compared to perhaps what people have penciled yeah. in their minds. Gabriel Santos, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with JP Morgan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.